Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this latest journey back to the 80s is my co-host, Jason Massick. Hello, Jason. Bill, it's just you and me now, sport. I'm going to find you, goddammit. That's right, listeners. Today's movie is a 1986 crime thriller, Manhunter, starring William Peterson, Tom Noonan, and Joan Allen. Directed by Michael Mann, this movie is rated R with a running time of two hours. It is based on the book Red Dragon by Thomas Harris. Hell yeah. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local mom and pop video store to rent this movie... This would be the description you would find on the back of the VHS box. It is what's on the box. Take it away, Jason. FBI agent Will Graham, William Peterson, has captured the diabolical Dr. Hannibal Lecter, Brian Cox, nearly losing more than just his mind in the process. But when Graham is called out of retirement to hunt the psychopath known as the Tooth Fairy, Tom Noonan, he must once again confront the horrors of Hannibal the Cannibal. If Will Graham enters the mind of the serial killer, can he ever come back? Joan Allen, Dennis Farina, and Kim Greist, and Stephen Lang co-star in this shocking thriller directed by Michael Mann and adapted from the novel Red Dragon by Thomas Harris. But be warned, fans and critics alike consider Manhunter to be far superior to The Silence of the Lambs, as well as one of the most unnerving serial killer movies ever made. Whoa. High praise, huh? Yeah, it is. I couldn't believe it. First of all, what's up, Bill Bat? Not much, man. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent because we're about to talk about Manhunter. Yes. Yeah, we can just talk about that title right off the bat. I don't know. I, I just like saying it. Uh, as cheesy as it may be, this is a fucking awesome movie, and I'm excited to fucking talk about it, man. And that What's on the Box segment when i read that i was like did they really just put it out there and just say yeah fans and critics alike consider manhunter to be far superior to the silence of the lambs like that's that's bold yeah because i'm trying to think um let's see how many oscars did silence of the lambs win mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how many was it pretty good. even good nominated for right now like, if you want to get into the nitty gritty, I mean, an argument can be made, right? If, oh. if you were to break it down, if you want to discuss Manhunter uh, v. The Silence of the Lambs, it could, you could make an argument for Manhunter. But just to put it on the what's on the box, though, I'm saying that's a bold move. Yes. Uh, it's like with the what's on the box for Ice Pirates. And just saying, most critics say this is better than Star Wars. <laughs> Yeah. Whoa, wait a minute. Yeah. Maybe it's not quite the same. Maybe not quite the same. Yeah, because if someone actually told me they liked Manhunter better than Signs of the Land, I would be okay with that. But yeah, if someone told me Ice Pirates was better than Star Wars, I would have to have them commit it. All right. So that was what's on the box. Uh, let's move on to our earliest memories of the film. Jason, why don't you start us off by earliest memories? Manhunter. Manhunter, 1986. Uh, my earliest memories, right off the bat, has to be just surrounding Michael Mann's stylized darkness. I, I mean, that has to be, that's my 
earliest memory. I mean, right off the bat, it's all purely visual style. That is Michael Mann. I remember this film being a bit frightening. It was a bit strange because of the psychological aspect. It definitely felt 80s it, you know, when I saw it, but only in that way that Michael Mann has defined the 80s. And I mean that because now you and I haven't grown up during the 80s. It's, you know, when you think of about all things pop culture in the 80s. It could be anything from Michael Jackson to Madonna to Bruce Springsteen to Prince to glam metal. I'm, I'm just talking about music alone, not to mention politics, the Reagan era, all these things going on in the world that are associated with the 80s. But Michael Mann, when it comes to pop culture and entertainment and especially film, packaged the 80s in a certain way that is so identifiable with it that it's just it's it's part of it. And he kind of took uh, whether it's what I, I'm saying it this way. I'm stating it this way. Sex, drugs, rock and roll packaged into stylized action through storytelling, through the storytelling medium of filmmaking. I mean, that's what he did. So obviously, Miami Vice was such a huge and influential movement. I mean, a series, television series, it was, uh, it's iconic. Uh, you're talking about pastels and colors and art deco, and it changed things. And he's a filmmaker that changed anything, but, uh, things, but because he started his own way of identifying with pop culture, I believe in the eighties, and then turning it into kind of, it became part of his auteur theory. It's just so identifiable with the eighties. I, I just, I love Michael Mann. It's a generational thing because, you know, I grew up in the 80s, so I consider Michael Mann part of my youth. So that being said, of course, that's a huge memory from this film because this is has that Miami Vice style. Uh, and obviously now I watched and was a fan of the Miami Vice television series on NBC on Friday nights. It was one of the few shows my mom would let me stay up for. Uh, it was a little bit darker, a lot more violent for sure. I think my mom actually may have enjoyed the show a little bit herself. Maybe she was a fan of Don Johnson. I'm not quite sure. Uh, she would let me stay up and watch that show. And I was immediately enamored by it. And so having been turned on to Miami Vice first, and then later on, probably in my college years, I did watch Manhunter. Now, at that time, I had not seen Silence of the Lambs quite yet, but uh, I did not watch Manhunter because I was a fan of the Thomas Harris novels. I had not read the books. I was not familiar with Red Dragon. I was not familiar with the story. So when I watched the film, as much as I enjoyed it, I didn't particularly identify with Hannibal Lecter and that character, nor did I understand a lot of that, uh, the background, the lore of that world that Thomas Harris had developed through the novelizations. So then when The Silence of the Lambs came out, and that was such a huge blockbuster and Oscar winner, then I would go back later on and revisit Manhunter and understand kind of where it all began, so to speak. But as far as earliest memories, you know, I just remember the fact that we have Will Graham, FBI profiler, and the buildup, getting into the mind of a killer. This is about catching a serial killer and becoming consumed by it. And I honestly, to be honest, one of my earliest memories is being disappointed by the ending a little bit. I felt it. This this is being you know the younger version of myself uh, was a little disappointed with the ending. I thought it was kind of a strange letdown for some reason. And now I've I've, I've got slight 
variation on that over the years. But uh, I also remember just imagery, uh, a bloody bedroom, Tom Noonan with a stocking over his face, a man on fire in a wheelchair flying into a parking garage, uh, and the home videos of the families, just a general creepiness. This is a psychological thriller and it messed with my head. So my earliest memory was like, this movie was really cool to look at, but it just left me with a weird feeling in my gut when it was done. And that stayed with me. And it made me revisit this time and time again. And it is a cult classic of mine. It is a favorite of mine. And um, I'll just uh, leave it at that. What are your earliest memories of Manhunter? So for me, um, like I said, Michael Mann, Miami Vice, one of my favorite shows of the 80s. I did not catch Miami Vice during its first run of that first season. So it wasn't until the reruns came throughout the summer. That's when I started watching the show because they used to have like soccer practice on Friday nights. Mm-hmm. And we had a game the next morning. So I'd come home, go to bed. And, you know, everybody would talk about the show Miami Vice. I'm like, oh, man, I got to watch it. So then once soccer season was over, that's when I started picking up. So I picked up like halfway through the season and then was watching reruns to catch all the episodes I miss. So then, of course, during the summer, because Michael Mann's show, they would show commercials all the time for Manhunter. And the shot that just stood out to me, which I just loved the shot, is the shot of Graham when he's running down the staircase. Yeah, that absolutely. Shot. I just love that shot. Just seeing oh, it on TV. And that's what I was like, I gotta see this movie. Just because of that shot. I don't know why. And just you know, and it was Michael Mann, it's the guy who did Miami Vice. So I was like, Oh, this has got to be cool too. And then I remember my like holidays. I didn't see it in the theater because I mean it, it came and went. Yeah. And my uncle had seen it. He couldn't stop talking about it. Just oh, like cool. how awesome this movie was. And right. like, when he got into a movie, like you had to watch it because that's the way he talked about it. It's like, you better watch it because next time I see you another holiday, we're going to talk about it. And he, couldn't, and he couldn't stop talking about this movie. So it's like, I got to get my hands on it. Uh, but yeah, most of the stuff that you said, yeah, it was, it was the same thing for me. It's just amazing imagery, just the Graham character. Cause he never really, you know, for me, never saw someone like that before. Who was a profiler who would literally try to get into the mind of someone else. And, and at that age, I, I didn't understand as much of what he was trying to go through as now, you know, repeat watching. If it makes it more intense and, and amazing where there really is that struggle because there is that scene with Lecter and him and Lecter basically tells him like, we are the same person and watching this. I see that more and more that he is right. When he says that, that they are mm-hmm. the same um, except like I said, he's insane and Graham loosely can still have a grip on reality and keep himself from, from going on that other side. Right. Yeah. I, I, I love this movie. This is, this is a great movie for a budding filmmaker. Mm-hmm. This would be a movie you should watch and study. Thousand percent nailed it. Yeah. I put that in my notes, Bill. Oh, did you? I have it at the very end. That's in my recommendations. I'll just say it now and I'll see it at the end again. As a up and coming filmmaker, as a veteran filmmaker, if for any reason you haven't seen this film, I would recommend it because of exactly what you said, because here we have a writer director that has a clear vision and a unique style. And he went for it and was allowed to do it. And he owns it, has total ownership of it. And it is singularly identifiable as a Michael Mann production because of his his auteur style 
if you're ever questioning yourself or you don't trust yourself as a filmmaker, I would say watch Manhunter. He goes for it. Yeah. He's, he knows what he knows exactly what he wants and he goes for it and he owns it. Like it or not, you got to respect it. Yeah. You think of all the directors and they all have something different or unique to them. Mm -hmm. And I think with man in this one seemed to do so many new things that at that point for me, I had never seen that was a, a little bit different. I would say like outside of watching Evil Dead with Sam Raimi with some of the crazy shots that he was pulling off with that movie. Yeah, Dutch angles and all the zooms yeah. and yeah. So I think there was something with this movie too, with the way he would light things and set mood. He's definitely a director I would study thinking of being a filmmaker. Completely agree. Completely agree in the way that, I mean, we could talk about my, Michael Mann here for, for some time, but I mean, why not? This is when to do it. Right. Yeah. And the fact that he combined so many elements and I was watching this film saying, thinking the same thing, man, as a film student, this is such a wonderful movie to watch because you can almost sense that he's experimenting at times. He's almost on the verge of, there's a couple of moments where you're like, was he just trying something here or did every shot have purpose? And I firmly believe every single shot has purpose. And they talk about mezzanine and, you're talking about composition of a frame and we talk about lighting. We talk about the music being so influential, but he takes every single element of the process and you can see how, and you can, you can go down the line of filmmakers and from Scorsese to Fincher and talk about how they use all the different elements, but this is, it's so abundantly clear that, that he's a perfectionist. And that everything is on screen. Everything that you see and hear is there for a reason. Yes. That's what he wants you to see and hear. Yeah. And it's very concise. It's clear. And as a, again, such an important thing we learn as filmmakers, as you know, Bill, whether it's as a writer or producer, director, or anyone in this is knowing what you want. And Michael Mann has a, just such a clear vision. Again, it's, it's art. So it's going to be a matter of opinion and you're going to have a taste and, you know, again, take it or leave it, but it's still, it's just cool, man. I, I, it's just such a great, it's such a cool movie when he's playing around with film speeds and different angles and just the framing of the architecture and the lighting from day to night to, you know, slow motion, free freeze frames, the synth music of the time, just to set tone and mood and then the dialogue, just his st the style of his writing, that alone is unique, you know, and then to put it all together, he bottles it all together. And now it's, and you can see from this film, then you go down the line throughout, you know, you go through his whole library and you see how he kind of, he's perfected his style and just watch heat. Please do. Just watch heat. Watch go it. from Manhunter all the way to heat. Good stuff, man. I also have um, some other initial thoughts uh, outside of just the man, Michael Mann, you know, speaking of lighting and synth music, that's why just man, when this movie opens, ladies and gentlemen, that's, if you want to know Michael, Mann, just watch the very beginning of this film. And you're like, Oh yeah. My, oh, this is a Michael Mann movie. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's just, <laughs> it has such a great cold open, first of all, but also when the synth settles in and you're just getting the needed neon titles showing up, 
Yes. And just like, wow, this is eighties and this is cool. We're like, you just are settling into a Michael Mann experience. So just let it, you know, just, you gotta go with it, let it ride with it. It's just great. So setting the, st- the tone from that's what got me again on this rewatch was like, wow, we are just going right from the get saturated colors, the pacing, simple, straightforward, like dialogue that has an edge. It's his own brand of cop speak. That's something I took away on this rewatch too. One of my initial thoughts was the dialogue. I'm just calling it cop speak. You can see it in his other films after this too. He just has a, there's a unique, there's a cadence. There's a way of talking that is very unique. That's his signature. We talked about how he frames shots, the symbolism through color. It's so everyone, we talk all Filmmakers, critics will talk about this regarding Manhunter, the symbolism through the color. I thought this this was a takeaway, initial thought I had, Bill Bant. The bad guy, our number one villain in this, outside of Hannibal Lecter, is the Tooth Fairy, otherwise known as Francis Dollarhide, played by Tom Noonan. He does not appear in this film until the 58-minute mark. I know, that is crazy. This film is just barely over two hours long. You see his feet in the beginning? And then that's it. That's it. Uh, So that's a choice. Uh, We don't even really get into his storyline until about an hour and 16 minutes in. And you would think that would be a strange choice. Usually you you have the intercutting between the cop and criminal storylines all along the way, right? It's that cat and mouse type of chase. But this is a little bit different. And this, again, you just got to respect Michael Mann. and just He just does things a little bit differently. William Peterson, man, another initial thought. I'm just watching this guy. I love this actor, man. The intensity of his performance and his look, he's intense, he's calculating, he's focused. Even Francis Dollarhide writes on a toilet tissue at some point in the in the film that he has a purposeful look. Yes. And that's a good way of describing William Peterson because this is a psychological threat. Like he has to get in the mind of killing. So the way he's fighting with himself to prevent himself from going over the edge. We understand that his character has had some mental problems in the past as a result of his dealings with Hannibal Lecter, but here you can see him going through the process once again and doing the deep dive and really getting lost in the case and getting into this uh, mindset. A credit to William Peterson as an actor, man, because not only does he provide that intensity, it's all on his face and in his eyes when he's watching the home videos, when he's talking to Hannibal Lecter, when he's trying to put it all together, but he's continually having this inner battle with himself because he can't lose it again. He can't cross that line that you talked about earlier. My last initial thought, man, is I think it's interesting that the fact that Hannibal the Cannibal, who's just, you know, Hannibal Lecter, he's not exploited in this film either. He has a small role played wonderfully by, brilliantly by Brian Cox, and the fact that he's a cannibal is not exploited in this film. No. You don't really think of Hannibal as the cannibal in this movie. We understand that he has, you know, he has a propensity for violence. Obviously, he's a serial killer. And Will Graham has to go see him in prison in order to try to get back into the mindset of a serial killer. But he's not, they don't talk about the fact that Hannibal eats people. And that's what we <laughs> We know Hannibal as now because of Silence of the Lambs, because of the film Hannibal. But you go back to Manhunter, and again, there's this is not an exploitation film on any level. 
I think it's and it's smart. It's more of a suspense thriller. Those are my other initial thoughts before we get into our other segments here. No, that's good stuff. Let's uh, let's move on to our next topic, which is favorite scenes. Jason, what are some of your favorite scenes from Manhunter? Uh, first of all, I'm going right from the top. The opening scene, uh, we start with, uh, it just starts right on a static shot of uh, the lights and the, I guess it's like a whale tail on the top of a, a van. You don't see the van. You don't understand really what the image you're looking at. It was confusing it to me actually in the rewatch. But then you simply see clearly someone has invaded a home. There's been a home break in and this invader is walking up the stairs, slowly flashing a light, a flashlight back and forth, going into a bedroom where a couple is asleep and the light flashes back and forth. Or actually, the light stays on the female, the wife, the woman in the bed, and she starts waking up. She wakes up to the light in her eyes and that's it. Creepy as fuck, man. It's a creepy opening. Yes. It's a great way to start a suspenseful, you know, this type of uh, psychological cop thriller. So... I love that. And then just going right into the actual opening scene after the credits, which I love. We have this really cool moody synth music that just transitions into basically seagulls. You hear the sound of birds and it's uh, clouds in the blue, you know, with the blue sky backdrop pan down onto the ocean and we're on a beach now. And we're in a basic, I believe it's supposed to be a marathon key in Florida and we have two of our leads. We have two of our protagonists. We have Will Graham and Jack Crawford sitting on this log on the beach. And here's Michael Mann at his best, like initially, like right off the bat. We have, they're sitting on opposite, opposite ends of this log facing opposite ways. One, Will Graham is wearing, uh, what he's wearing like shorts and a t-shirt with a glass of iced tea. And then you have Jack Crawford, who is this hardened, uh, the older like FBI agent who's the boss and he's wearing, you know, his button down shirt and slacks and shoes and tie and whatnot. And so you see polar opposites right here, right from the get. And they're even facing opposite ways on the opposite ends of the log. It's a great introduction of our protagonists and characters. And within uh, three to five minutes, we know what the story is going to be, where they're going. It's a great lead in. Because we understand that Jack Crawford, played by Dennis Farina, the FBI agent, is there to get Will Graham back into the fold. Because two families have been murdered and they're trying to track down the serial killer. And Will Graham is the best FBI profiler there is. And Jack is there to recruit him once again. Because Will Graham has been out of the game for a bit. Uh, The last case he took was... uh, the Hannibal Lecter case where he actually captured Hannibal Lecter, but was severely injured in the process and had a mental breakdown and he lost it and he had to get better and he had to heal. And this is all revealed in much less time than it just took me to explain it (laughs) in the movie. And I love this opening scene because then Jack Crawford says, you don't have to look at these photos if you don't want to, but I'm going to give them to you. And you have this great line by Will Graham. He says, this is this is again. This is Michael Mann speaking. Will Will Graham says, "Don't try to run a game down on me, Jack." You know, it's just like who says that? And he looks at these photos, and you expect these photos to be these violent crime scene photos. Yes, and they're not. They're just photos of these two happy families. And 
it was really smart of Crawford to do that. That's what I love Will, about that scene. Yeah. It's just brilliant. Will Graham is like, I'll think about it. And of course, right after he looks at the photos of families, what does he look, see? He looks up and he sees his own family coming down the beach. It's his wife, Molly, and his son, his 11-year-old son, Kevin. You see Will Graham now, who is in his environment here in the Florida. And it just, you would think now, you know, he's asked Jack Crawford, the FBI agent, to stick around for dinner. And you would think, in my opinion, it would lead into maybe a scene at dinner with all of them there and discussing the case even possibly. But it goes right to into uh, just a brief conversation between Jack Crawford and Molly, Will Graham's wife up on the balcony. And I just thought that was really smart because they kind of talk about from the wife's point of view, her concerns about bringing Will Graham back into this case. I just think that's just really smart writing because you're getting different perspectives on the real concern they have for, because they're all friends. I mean, they're friends, but she's his wife and just concerned about his mental health. Because something really fucked him up before. That's what's established here. And it could potentially fuck him up again. So love that whole, everything about that opening. What do you got for a favorite scene? Good call. So I'll put my, my first favorite scene. I wasn't sure what the order put him in, but I'll do it this one. Yeah, um, yeah. Go for it, it. Was the reveal of the tooth fairy to Freddie Lowndes. Because <laughs> like I said earlier, we do not see this character until 58 minutes into the movie. But we have a pretty good understanding at this point what this person is or what this person is about, thanks to Graham, who has painted this picture of this person who breaks into these people's homes, murders them all, but they don't they don't know why this is happening. Right. And they're not getting anywhere on the case. So there's a character played by Stephen Lang. Oh yeah. The the tat the national tatler reporter. Yes. So he's pretty loud. Tabloid reporter. He's been following Graham since back in the lecture days and supposedly when he was going through his breakdown, Lowndes got pictures of him. So him and Graham are not sharing Christmas cards with each other. But Graham realizes that if he can get Lowndes to write about him, he might be able to get the, the Tooth Fairy out. So they make this whole fictional story about the Tooth Fairy, all these things that he's he's not just to kind of piss him off and, and hopefully have him make a mistake. Right. So of course the tooth fairy is not happy about this and kidnaps Freddie, the reporter, right? Freddie Lowndes. Yeah. Yes. And brings him back to his house. And it's just a great scene. Cause you see Stephen Lang, Freddie tied up in, in the chair and he's got like, literally, he's tied like, up in a wheelchair. Yes. What the fuck? What is that? Yeah. It was like a, like a tampon thing over his eyes. Yeah. I still don't know what was stick like what, yeah. What's stuck over his eyes, but yeah. He's yeah. blindfolded yeah. with some sticky shit. Yeah. And then he rips it off and you see this shock on his face and you're like, oh my God, what are you going to see? And at this point you kind of, you know, have a picture in your head of who you think this person's going to be. And it doesn't, it doesn't match at all. It's no. not what I expected to see. And you see Francis Dollar Hyde with basically a stocking down to his nose, covering his face. Yeah, so fucking weird. Yes. And then he's explaining He's trying to explain to Freddie what, why he is doing this without kind of explaining it. So you can't right. completely understand wh- where he's going. Cause he's talking about this dread dragon. You're like, what, what, what is, what is this? And then he makes Freddie read basically this note that he wrote to explain, you know, the becoming 
This is, you know, this is what it's all about. It still doesn't make any sense. Right. And um, we find out that he has this nickname, the Tooth Fairy. I can explain, you know, that is something that is a, a little bit, I have it later on in my notes, but it is a little underdeveloped in this film. Yes. It has to do with Francis Dollarhide, who is our main antagonist, nicknamed the Tooth Fairy. He bites his victims. That's p- only part of what he does to his victims. Like mm-hmm. you had stated earlier, he mutilates them. He puts the pieces of uh, mirrored glass in their eyes. Uh, he sets up the bodies, uh, like positions them as an audience to look at himself. It's very strange, but part of it is that he also bites them and gotten these, these like teeth marks off of the bodies. And the part of the issues, and it's not quite explained thoroughly in the film, is that he has fucked up teeth. Mm-hmm. And that's why he has a the dentures yes. that he wears to cover up uh, deformity. Mm-hmm. that he has with his teeth uh, that was saying you were about to make a point though in this particular scene because he's got freddie lounge tied up and he has him read the piece of paper into the tape recorder then keep going yeah he basically tells freddie like what you wrote is lies and you're going to tell right. me that they're lies and of course you know freddie's like yeah I, I totally agree and then makes him you know read this thing about becoming and then he puts the dentures on and just bites him in the face and the last shot is of the outside of the tooth fairy's house and you just hear freddy screaming screaming yeah it's crazy yeah it's fucking creepy yeah and then the next shot is the the signature shot of the wheelchair going down the ramp in the tattler on fire and you just it's an image man yeah it's an unforgettable image that is a, an amazing shot too, because it starts with the security guard, and he's just sitting there, and he's reading the paper, and he kind of hears something. He looks back, and you kind of hear it too, but you're like, "What? Yeah, what? What is that?" And then he looks back, and, and you see the tunnel, and then you just hear like this weird light start coming, and then it goes back the to glow. the glow, and the security guard freaks out and just starts running. You're like, "What the hell's going on?" And then the wheelchair just comes chucking down the ramp it is rolling yeah with freddy on fire that's just nuts it's just nuts it's just a crazy. it's brutal it's yeah. awful yeah yeah just i i love the way you describe this man and i'm such a great call as a favorite scene it's undeniable starting from the beginning the fact that you know you mentioned dollar hide doesn't appear till an hour into this film and that's good suspense because we talk about the fine line between horror and suspense right in the genres and this was a major discussion with Silence of the Lambs, especially during that Oscar year. You know, a lot of people will still call Silence of the Lambs a horror film when a lot of us others would call it suspense or thriller. And this also ties into what I was talking about earlier, exploiting violence. Now, Halloween or Jason Voorhees' Friday the 13th films, these are those are horror movies. And they have their place. And they're outstanding. They're great. And they can be graphically violent and they're violent for violence sakes. That that's the genre. If you saw, if let's say um, Freddy Krueger, like bite somebody, you would see the blood splatter, right? Well, this is a scary movie, but it is a suspenseful thriller. So the point is that we do not see the tooth fairy until an hour in all of we have just been building up an image in our minds. Like you were saying for an hour, because we're getting third party, outside party descriptions of this killer. And if you just keep 
being, what is he, who is this guy? Who is this guy? So now all the suspense is building. It's just smart storytelling filmmaking. So then he finally presents himself in the weirdest fucking way. You've got the character is described as a six foot seven man. And Tom Noonan, who plays the tooth fairy is six foot five in real life. Big guy. And he's got fucking nylon over his face, half of his face. So his nose is smashed in and he looks creepy as all hell. Yes. No, there's no violence actually happening yet. It's just suspense and anticipation. And then, as you said, he has poor Freddie Lowndes tied up in this chair and he has him, you know, read this retraction off a piece of paper into this tape recorder. And then he puts in the dentures and he goes in to, to bite him. Do you see any blood? Do you actually see him bite him? No. It cuts away. Like you said, you hear the screaming and it makes it so much worse. It's awful. And then just on top of it, then you do get the big shot. Then he sets him on fire and on the wheelchair. And then it's like, holy shit, man, this guy suffered. This guy suffered big time. This tooth fairy, AKA Francis Dollarhide, he's a bad dude. Yeah. He's you think about it, he is worse than Michael Myers because he's, he kills kids. He oh, kills yeah. little kids. That's disturbing too, because there is that, that shot where, Graham goes into the house and you see him walk by the kid's bedroom and you just see the little spots of blood, the pools, the, the smaller blood. pools of blood. Yeah. Yeah. And, the then when he, and then when he goes in the bedroom and it's a all white bedroom, with just all the blood all over the yeah. place. You're just like, Holy crap. And then when he's describing it, then you realize like, Oh my God, he brought the kids in this room and set them up as little figures. Oh, this guy's horrible. This guy is horrible. He's uh, deranged. He's a deranged serial killer. Yeah. Psychopathic, completely insane. And I love that with that whole sequence, which is very disturbing when we have our FBI profiler, Will Graham, go back to that, go into that house with his own tape recorder. It goes, walks up the stairs to the bedrooms. It's a a matching identical shot to the opening I was talking about, that cold open. So you see Will Graham and because he's trying to reenact the crime. He wants to get into, like, keep saying this, but he's getting into the mind of a killer. So he walks up the stairs in the dark with a flashlight and he goes into the room and it's just really smart. Like right away, we get it. Oh, he's going through the motions as if he were the killer. Okay. This is what an FBI profiler does. And then he starts talking and dictating into his mini cassette recorder as he looks at those images you were describing with the blood on the floor and then walking into the main bedroom with the blood splatter everywhere. And he's just looking through the file that he has on the crime scene, describing what had happened. And it's awful. It's fucking awful. But that's, again, that's suspense and thriller, right? Versus showing the act. You just hear about it. You hear a description of it and you see the aftermath of it. And now it's up here in your imagination and it makes it so much worse. So good. So good. All right. What do you got for your next scene? So we were talking about Graham. I love his heightened moments of him talking to himself and when he's in his hotel room. And this is when we see that he's gotten a hold of some evidence of these families that have been murdered and they are home videos. And he's watching the VHS tapes of these families. And mainly at this point, I think he's watching the first fan, the Leeds family, and he's just watching it. And you see him the way he's staring at the screen and the way that the frame is composed you have on the left side of the frame it's basically the tv and the glow of the tv is coming off on will graham's face and will graham's on the right side of the frame 
he's almost, it's almost all of the back of the TV. So like three quarters of the frame is all yes. black. It's great. And shot. you have one quarter of the frame of, of just Will Graham leaning into the screen. It's just great because you're like, wow, he's in it. This we're seeing him go through the process that a profiler goes through. And as he's watching it, he starts talking as if he were the tooth fairy, as if he were the serial killer. And it's a line that goes like this. He says, because he, he's looking at the Leeds, the wife, Mrs. Leeds, and he says, she really is lovely, isn't she? And then he goes on to say, you took off your gloves to touch her, didn't you? Didn't you, you son of a bitch? You touched her with your bare hands and then you put your gloves back on. But while your gloves were off, did you open all their eyes so they could see you? And he gets into it and it's like, what is he doing? This is weird. This is yeah. off-putting. Like he's talking in such a weird, like getting so emotional, but it's intense, man. It's like, oh, this guy is really, he's playing a mind game. And uh, I love that shit, man. And there's another scene later on when he, you know, um, and I'll just jump to that right now. I'll combine these two because I'm just putting basically scenes of of Graham talking to himself or talking to out loud. Uh-huh. All that shit is fucking great. Getting into the mind of a killer. So one was the watching the leads video in the hotel room early on. Later on, he goes to Birmingham to go to the Jacoby house, which is the second, or actually, I believe that was the first family. Let's get, if I get him back and forth. But anyway, either way, he examined, he has to go, he goes into the backyard of the Jacoby home and he ends up climbing a tree and he's looking into the, the house from a distance from up uh, on this tree. And he looks into the windows and he's again, getting into the mind of the killer as if he were the killer watching this family walking through the house. And then he says, and after a while you climbed down and you went into them, didn't you? Didn't you? You son of a bitch. You watched them all goddamn day long. That's why houses with big yards, but that's again, just another line where he really kind of emotes. Yes. Cause I'm not even doing it justice. Like he's yelling it. Oh yeah. He gets really mad on first watch. If you're not, let's say invested in the movie, it's almost laughable. Like you're like, what is this guy doing? But if you are invested in this, as I am when I watch this, because I, I think William Peterson is great. I get it. He's all in. Will Graham is all in and he's committed and he's attached. That could be very scary for him. There's a lot, the stakes are high. And so I think his acting and his emoting in these moments kind of match the heightened quality anyway that's my take so just combining the screens graham basically yelling out loud getting into the mindset uh some favorite scenes of mine what else you got bill uh for me my next favorite scene uh also involves the tooth fairy i'm just going to call this the strong as i am scene yes absolutely so now we're getting a little story on the tooth fairy from the tooth fairy perspective and he works in a film processing so they process videos, pictures, all this kind of different stuff. And he meets a coworker who must be new there and she's blind. And you can see that he has a thing for her, but there's still like this shyness. And we'll kind of, hopefully we'll talk later about why he's doing what he is doing. Right. So he volunteers to take her home. And on the, on the way home, that's where we have the, the tiger scene. It's a tiger at a vet. And sedate it, and she gets to pet him and feel it. So she's really like loving this tiger and, and lying on it. And um, he's getting excited because now, in a way, I guess what he's doing is being prophesized. Where 
All right, so I'll explain it. So he feels like if he kills these families, it shows himself that he will himself become desired by women. So he finds women that he finds attractive and for some reason murders him and goes through this ritual that he will then find himself to be desired. Correct. Yeah, that's the transformation. He is becoming, he's changing. So now being with Reba, he actually thinks this is working, where if he keeps killing these families, girl's going to find him attractive, and now all of a sudden this blind girl is, is has taken to him. And he brings it back to her place, and they actually make love, and which... I guess I never caught that before when like like when he was crying afterwards and I was kind of like, why is he doing that? And I'm like, oh, because he realizes like this is working. I need to keep continuing to do this because now women are finding me attractive. So now he thinks yeah, they're yeah. A, a couple. And so like the next night or a couple of nights later, he goes to her house. Right. And sees her at the front door with her boss. And now Ralph, this is really. Yeah. yeah. So now this is really the first time where you see what the tooth fairy sees through his eyes. And the coworker is just basically just trying to pick. He's like, oh, he has something on your face. Right. He's innocently dropping her off. It seems like like he took her home from work because he had offered earlier to take her home. It was just that Francis did instead and then falls in love with her, et cetera. As you described it this time, you know, Francis shows up to to just see her. And it looked like or it seems like Ralph had just been walking her home or taking her home. And like you said, yeah, picking something up uh, off of her face. She had something on her face, but obviously Francis doesn't see it that way. Right. He thinks that they're falling in love and that he's trying to kiss her. Right. And it puts him in this rage, this amazing rage. Like, so like he literally rips the cover off the dashboard of the, of his van and gets out of the car and, grabs the coworker, like literally throws him through the bushes and then just kills him right there, right there on the front lawn, just shoots yeah. him. Boom, boom. And then goes to get Reba who he thought yeah. was his girlfriend, but I guess not anymore. And it was just, I think it was just cool that you kind of got more of an understanding of who he was or how you, you were finally seeing through his eyes instead of through Graham's. And that's what I call it. And, and the music was awesome too. I think the music fit there. Perfect. Strong as I am. Right. So I thought it was a cool scene. It's one of my favorites. Great call. Absolutely. I love the fact that you're picking the dollar hide scenes versus like, I've got it going through all the, the Will Graham scenes. Yeah. You are my dollar hide to my, to my Will Graham. So, because we now are seeing Francis dollar hides storyline here, we're witness to who this character is and we're getting a little bit of developed. I have some issues with here that I'll file later regarding this, but at least we're getting something. And Tom Noonan is great. I think he's great. And I have to say the moment when he pulls up outside of Reba, that Reba is the love, his love interest, the blind woman played by Joan Allen. Yes. And played well. She plays blind very well. And he, Francis Dollarhide pulls up in his van, unexpectedly sees Ralph is taking her home, assumes the worst, thinking that they're in a relationship and that she's basically cheating on him, et cetera, with Ralph and goes over the top, as you said. The look, the expression on Tom Noonan's face is excruciating. Yes. There's that great shot of him where he just, uh, he's like, he's so sitting heartbroken. in the van and he can't look at, because he looks out because he's excited to be there. And we all know that feeling, right? showing up for a date or something and you just have the butterflies 
and he shows up and he's excited to be with her. It's almost in a weird way you're kind of rooting for him because he's this pathetic, strange, twisted creature, but he's found love. And he looks at her and when he sees her with Ralph, this pained expression, this tortured expression comes over his face and he can't look away. He looks down, but then he kind of leans up and he kind of this is like turns into like these puppy dog eyes that are these sad puppy dog. And he looks at them and then it turns to rage. Yeah. If he, if he wasn't a serial killer, you would almost feel sorry for him in that moment. Yeah. Almost. But there's some serious, serious, uh, there's some great acting there. I mean, his, that look that he has on his face is just heart wrenching. But yeah, he just thinks worse and snaps and doesn't rationale this at all. Oh no, That's what's no, he scarier. He is very reactionary. Yes, doesn't end well for Ralph. Poor Ralph. And then when he knocks on the door and and Reba answers, he's like Ralph, and, he's, and he just basically just said, "I just like I just killed him." He's yeah. basically dead on your. And he gives her the old chloroform treatment. Yep. Yeah, some scary stuff. Uh, don't want to mess with the tooth fairy. I. I'm going to take it back a little ways. And I'm going to say one of my other favorite scenes is for sure. The uh, Will Graham goes to visit Hannibal Lecter. Oh yeah. And that was on my list too. Yeah, for sure. Now we're kind of jumping back and forth, but uh, these are all great scenes. Just, you got to see this movie. It's awesome. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> uh, this is the first time in cinema that we are introduced to Hannibal Lecter played by Brian Cox. Now, Will Graham, knows that in order to catch the tooth fairy, AKA Francis Dollarhide, he's got to get, he needs to quote unquote, recover the mindset. Yes. Which is a very cool line. Again, Michael Mann speak here. He says this to Jack Crawford. He goes, I need to go see Lecter and Graham or uh, Crawford is like, why, why would you want to do that? Yep. And we know it's been set up. We know that Lecter is the one that put him over the edge before. That's why he left the FBI. And now he's been pulled back in to be on this case. And he now wants to go back and talk to Lecter. Not good, right? Well, you would think. But his reasoning is just that. He needs to recover the mindset. So he goes to this you know, high security institution slash you know, prison where they're holding Lecter. And by the way, that's shot at an art museum yes. in Atlanta. I mean, that's what, Michael, of course, Michael Mann chooses some sort of architectural, fantastic yes. design place. And it's just, it's stark. It's all white, but it's quite beautiful. And it's just, you know, he's playing with your mind here. It's Michael Mann, that is, with the colors. So Will Graham goes to see Hannibal Lecter and it he walks in and it's just mano y mano. And this entire scene is basically, you're looking through bars the entire time. The bars are always separating the frame and your view. So either you're looking through the, the bars at Lecter or you're looking through the bars at Will Graham. And they're on opposite sides. The scene opens with Lecter facing away from Will Graham and says, I can sense or smell that you're still wearing the same aftershave from yeah. whatever the trial or whatever it was. And here we go. Lecter's right from right out of the gate is already playing games and we can see he's highly intellectual and, you know, very aware and uh, that they have, they also have a history, right? They have a relationship that's established. It's great stuff. So the word games begin back and forth 
And Will Graham says, I need your help. I'm going to, can you look at these files? Do you, are you aware of this serial killer, the tooth fairy that's been killing these families? And obviously Lecter has, you know, he's well-read. He's, he's aware of the cases. The back and forth here is great. And the fact that the whole facility, it's all white and yes. Lecter isn't all white. Yes. And actually Will Graham is wearing a darker colors and he's wearing green and it's black and white, but it's unsettling. Because we know Lecter is the worst kind of killer. It's such a, and it, it is, don't get me wrong, a very sterile kind of inhuman setting. But some of these lines here from Lecter, when he asks, he says, dream much, Will? I love the fact that he says, you came here to get a look at me, to get the old scent back again, didn't you? The reason you caught me, Will, is that we're just alike. Do you understand? Smell yourself. That's the last thing Lecter says to him as yeah. he's leaving. Smell yourself. The point being is that, like you said, right from the top of this podcast, is the he's got he specifically went there to recover the mindset and to become more like the serial killer. And that's what Lecter is saying at the end. Smell yourself. You're just like me. You've got the scent back again. You I've rubbed off in you. We're one and the same. Very, very cool stuff. Great introduction to Lecter, Brian Cox, Scottish actor, his voice, he's got the demeanor. It's hard, you know, of course, to watch this after knowing Anthony Hopkins in this role, but Brian Cox is very, very strong. And the fact of the matter is, Will Graham is clearly upset after this visit. He's once, once again, Lecter has gotten into his mind gotten his head. He himself wanted to go there though. And he's slipping into the mindset and it affects him. He has to, he's desperate to get out of the room, gets out of the room. We have that wonderful shot of him running down the stairs, running down the walkway that run, you know, goes in circles. And then he runs out of the facility and he has to catch his breath. He's, he, he looks out onto the lawn. It's blurry because his eyesight has been upset. Like he's out of sorts because of this this killer that he just, you know, had to go back to an interview. It's, it's rough, but it's a, it's a impactful scene. It's, you know, the psychological game. So that uh, it's one of my favorite scenes for sure. Yeah. I think what I love about this scene, it makes it kind of chilling to me is it almost seems like Lecter knew that Graham would show up someday and see him. Mm -hmm. He was ready. He was just ready for him. Always like 10 steps ahead. Yes. Just Lecter knows what's going to happen next. Yeah. And that's a great call. Sure. Yeah. And in a way, Graham admits to it too. It's like, I, I caught you because I was lucky. I was lucky. That's one of the, I didn't write that down. I thought, and I'm glad you brought it up because it is an iconic line, I think, from this as the fact that uh, Lecter says, well, then you must think that you're smarter than me. And Graham says, no, I'm clearly not smarter than you. He said, well, you must think you're smarter than me if you caught me. He said, well, I caught you because you have certain disadvantages. He said, like what? You're insane. Yeah, it's a great scene. Yeah, and I have to say, uh, this is for, for all the film geeks out there. My last final scene has to be the final shootout. What did I just say? Last final scene, last favorite scene is the final shootout. Because you have a great slow-mo of Graham jumping through the window. And I'm going to break this down real quick. Again, for the film geeks out there, the way Michael Mann shoots this is it's just insane. So Dollar Hyde is on top of Reba on a table, about to slice her up with a piece of broken mirror, a piece of broken glass. He's about to murder her. 
we know this, right? And so Will Graham is there at the last second to save the day. And we have this like strange jump cut where Dollarhide looks up all of a sudden out the window to see Graham running towards the, the window in slow motion. The film speeds up as Dollarhide jumps off Ariba. Like the, it, the film is clearly sped up. And then it cuts back to Graham in a slow motion stride running, which is an awesome shot as he runs. There's a double take of him crashing through the window. Dollarhide literally catches him and slices his face with the uh, broken glass. There's a double take of Dollarhide picking up and throwing Graham at the fridge. The, another double take of Graham crashing into the fridge door and a double take of Graham hitting the floor. Like it's a two take of each shot. And it's very, it's crazy, but it's awesome. And I love that scene. So that's what I got for my favorite scenes. Let us move on to the next segment, which would be soundtrack. Soundtrack for Manhunter. Jason, I've been listening to the soundtrack all week. I freaking love it. As, as you should have been. You know, just like Miami Vice, it's music with imagery and it just works. Uh, yeah, a thousand percent. Everybody remembers the song at the, at the end with Iron Butterfly and uh, Gata Davida. In all its glory. I think you could say that's iconic. Yeah. That whole scene is so jarring. The yes. way it's cut, the way it's shot, that's speeding up the film, the slow motion, the combination with the loud music. Yeah, it's all insane. And then um, other artists on the soundtrack is uh, Shriekback. So you're right. They have three songs. We have the song by Shriekback entitled Evaporation, which is when Graham investigates the Jacoby backyard. Yes, in Birmingham okay. when he climbs the tree. Okay. Uh, and then, like you said, the dollar hide and Reba with the tiger scene is a track. I can't pronounce it, but it's like Coelocanth. Yeah. I don't know how to say that one. Coelocanth. We'll just we'll say that for now. And the third song is entitled the big hush. This is a third track by Shriekback. And I entitled this scene or for the, the scene. You're a sweet, thoughtful man. D this is while Reba is uh, engaged in sexual oh, activities yes. uh, with Dollar Hyde. She yes. calls him D and she's basically, she's riding him. She's straddling him. She's riding him. She, and she, she says, you're a sweet, thoughtful man, D. So, yeah. Yes. And Michael Mann is a big fan of Shriekback because he does use two of their songs in Miami Vice. And one of them is called the Underwater Boys, which sounds okay. a lot. It's like a sped up version of the Big Hush. It's almost, gotcha. I, I thought it. I thought it was the same song at first. So I listened to it, and then I had to look it up. I'm like, oh no, they're totally different songs. So yeah, he is a streak back man. And then, of course, the ending credit song, "Heartbeat" by Red Seven. Heartbeat, heartbeat. Which he actually then again oh, used in Miami Vice. Yeah, Miami Vice. hell yeah, it is. Is that the, the which episode is that in Miami Vice? Is it when they does it lead into the when they're on the boat? And they're going across the water and in the uh in a speedboat in no, a speedboat. Or is that a different song? That's voices by William Russ or okay. Russ. Russ Ballard. It's Russ Ballard. Who's voices? That's the name of the song. And the artist, Russ Ballard. Well, you would know better than I. Heartbeat was used in um Nobody Lives Forever, which right. also You're the man. starred Kim Christ. We have the Reds doing a lot of that type of score, like the tracks on this soundtrack, right? Because yes. you talked about Shriekback doing some of the lyrical uh, music. We had the Prime Movers doing Strong As I Am. You talked about Heartbeat by Red 7. And then the Reds 
do tracks on this called Leeds House, Lecter Cell, Jogger Stakeout, some cool synth stuff. Yeah. For sure. Michael uh, or Mitchell Mikita Rubini, who's credited as one of the film composers here, but he only has one track, yeah. which is Graham's theme. But he shares credit with the Reds. It kind of does have a Miami Vice sound to feel to it. Right. And the Reds were in the run. I think at some point we're going to be doing the music for Miami Vice. or so we're in the running for it. Or Michael Mann was looking at them to potentially do mm-hmm. music. But obviously, you know, Jan Hammer was ended up being the main guy. But it's all similar ethereal synth yeah. tracks, which is what really. And the, the point being is like just getting into not just going over the track listing here, but the fact that this music is part of Michael Mann's signature. It's part of the genre, the experience. It's a tonal thing. It sets the tone. It's ambiance. It's a character unto itself. It's unmistakably identifiable and you cannot, it's inseparable from the, especially Miami Vice and these eighties Michael Mann films. And for me personally, I can go back and just listen to these scores alone without the, and let my imagination run. Some of them, yes, don't hold up as well as others. They can come off a bit cheesy. There are tracks that I don't care for in this particular genre, but for the most part, I'm all about it. And maybe it's because that's when I grew up and I will have a nostalgic attachment to it, but I love the synth. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I I love it too. And I'll listen today, you know, you and I will, I mean, geez, even trying to find the theme song for our very own podcast here, you know, go through the library, but I love a lot of the modern uh, bands even out there today. You can find them on YouTube. You just Google the stuff and you'll just find great, great 80 cent stuff out there. Yes. Still very well alive today. Cool. Um, So let's move on to our next segment, which would be Swiss cheese and the complaint department. And the reason we call it Swiss cheese is... Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. All right. So what do you have for Swiss cheese or complaint department? Here, Here's a question for you, Bill. Yep. So Francis Dollarhide, the tooth fairy. Yes. He's a bad guy. These murder scenes are pretty awful. Yes. And But you think about all that's involved. We know this. Think about this, that he has a flashlight. Because we know this, that he's gone up the stairs with a flashlight. We know that he has a camera because when he is talking to Freddie Lowndes, when he's got him strapped to the wheelchair, he's showing him still like slides. Yes. So he must have taken photos, correct? Yes. Okay. So he's got a flashlight. He's got a camera. He's got rubber gloves on. He uses talcum powder, put on the rubber gloves. We know he has a gun because he shot Mrs. Leeds in the abdomen. He also has a bolt cutter at one of the scenes and a glass cutter and a suction cup at one of the other murder scenes. So he's got a lot of shit with him. Yes. <laughs> Do you see where I'm kind of going with this? Yeah. It's like in order to, to sneak into this home and on top of it, commit these heinous crimes smashing mirrors and broken glass positioning bodies and all these things. I sometimes I'm just, you know what I'm doing? I'm playing the role of Will Graham right now. Putting myself in the shoes of the killer. Yes. Getting in the mind of the killer. It's like, how do I manage all this shit? Do I just walk into the house with a bag of all my tools, put it down and then kind of go do my thing and then get to the tools when I need them. 
at the time I need them. I don't know. Just seemed like when I started thinking about all the crap he's got to have, it's not like he's just walking in and killing these people. Like he's got to have the stuff on him at some point. Yeah. Must have like, some cause I don't want to get into the nitty gritty as like how, you know, the step-by-step, how did he murder these people? But you, you see where I'm going. Yes. Talk to me, talk to me about your holes, Bill. All right. So this, this is my major Swiss cheese hole of the movie and it deals with the ending. So absolutely. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So for what we've gathered from the other two murders, unfortunately, is it happens on a full moon. The lunar cycle. The lunar cycle. Right. Yeah. So there's a scene with Graham and Crawford and they say like, it's the full moon tonight. You're not going to figure out who it is. The crime is going to happen. We'll be there at a moment's have, notice. Why did I not? Did I not have that in my final? I'm sorry to interrupt you, man. How did I not that have that in my favorite scenes? Oh, I do. Why did I? Here we go. You just rewound to the favorite scenes. The moment okay, when Graham great. puts it together. You've seen these films, haven't you, my man? Yes. That's a that moment when Graham finally puts it all together. Okay. It's fucking awesome. That might be my. You know what? That's my fucking favorite scene right there. Okay. Because he then he goes to to Farina's like call or because he's got the guys at the evidence locker room whatever calling he's like yeah to help look at the film and they get the labels off the film that's how they know that dollar hide works at the processing center correct and there's that moment when farina is on the phone and he pauses like to look at graham graham's like it's the same label isn't it yeah and farina doesn't even say anything he's like damn that guy's good Mm -hmm. he's good he's like get the chopper we got to get over it's like fuck yeah right Anyway, sorry. Back to complaints. So going up to that moment, we see the Tooth Fairy was watching video of the new family that he is going to murder, essentially. But for some reason, they go to the Tooth Fairy's house. The Tooth Fairy should not be at the house. He should be at that home. Right. There's no reason to go to the house because he technically would not be there if he is following the lunar pattern. Because it oh that's he huge should, he that's should be he should be at the house to be at the house that night because it's the that's the whole point right is that like, they're running out of time he's supposed to kill that night right because knowing from what we know about the tooth fairy the tooth fairy spends the day at that home which would probably be not in yeah he's usually casing the home and it's not in Atlanta it's probably somewhere else or who who knows. So the only reason to go to the house is to wait for him to return, not to stop him because he's, he should already be at someone else's house right now doing what he's doing. Unfortunately, like they are too great late. call. They I thought you late. were going somewhere else. Cause I have a whole, I have a litany of issues with the final scene, but no, so do I. That's, that's, that'll all fall in my plate department, but that, that was just my Swiss cheese. And then that a, is a great call, man. That's a huge hole. Yeah. It should have man, been like, tomorrow. I want to say that was in the back of my mind, but I can't really, I think that's awesome. That's awesome, man. So that is my big Swiss cheese hole with, you know, and that also made me think of the fact that actually, you know, where he works at the gateway photo lab, I think that's what it's called or something like that. Yeah. Something like, yeah, that sounds right. Uh, which just made me think of the gateway international uh, space station where Ripley was like, Oh, uh, I don't know. There's just gateway is the name of everything. And I just got eighties movies on the brain. So he works at the Gateway Photo Lab, which is in, I think, St. Louis. It's in Missouri. Yes. And his he his kills have been in Atlanta and in Birmingham. Correct. I believe that he's got a great gig at this photo lab. He's getting a lot of paid time off. Yeah. 
right? Because he's going and he's casing these joints. He's got to travel. It takes time, right? Not to mention, like you said, if this is the third, this would be the third family and he's got to go to wherever this family lives. Yeah, because the one home, because they talk about that both those families had pets and he kills the pets. Mm -hmm. So he's got to go to the home one or two times before because he's got to get rid of the pets. I fucking love how Will Graham puts it all together when he's watching those videos and he starts putting it, breaking it all down. Yeah. It's the writing's brilliant. His acting, Farina, they're at each other's throats. And then, ah, definitely my favorite scene. Okay. Sorry. All right. So what do you got? Great, man. That's a great hole, Bill. They should have, yeah, they should be going to what I mean, they wouldn't know where to go. Next crime scene. Yeah. No, they wouldn't know. That's the problem is that they wouldn't know where to go, even if they had, because they would be like, they would be sifting through all the, the home videos and going, what would be his next target? And they may pick the right family. They may not. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They wouldn't have enough time. Cause they didn't, well, they didn't have the ha- their hands on cause the, the, the crime hasn't been committed yet. Right. The only reason they have the two videos they do have is because those families had been killed. Yep. And so they went, so this third family hasn't been killed yet. They don't have their home video. So they would, have to go to the photo lab and go through all the freaking videos and guess and be like, well, this seems like his MO, like he would attack, go for this family. And then they'd have to do like cast a wide net and send cops to all these houses. Mm-hmm. Are you following me? But their thinking would be, I would imagine is that they don't know which house to go to, but they figure out where he lives. So the best they can do is go there, hope he's there if he's not there, hope that maybe the video is there. Right. That the home video is there of the next family. So they have to go there regardless. I think that would be so they're kind procedure. Of su- so in a way, they're, that- yeah. So they'd be surprised that they actually saw him there. Because it's almost like they went there expecting him to be there. They that, should be more surprised they, the fact that he actually was they there. Sh- right. They should just, they there should have been something written in there as to, well, we know who he is. We know where he lives. He may not be there tonight. He may be out killing somewhere, but our best chance is to go to his home to find some sort of lead that'll tell us where he went Yeah, so that we can send cops to that house, to that residence, to that family's residence. But that they didn't have time to do that. We just kind of, they just go to his place and he happens to be there about to kill Reba. Mm-hmm. Good call, man. Good call. It's hard to overlook. What do you got? I have an issue. This is a complaint with a particular actor. I don't know his name. I didn't care to look it up, but he plays one of the Florida cops when they're about to move Graham's family, his wife and son to the safe house. Just before that happens, we think that there's a prowler outside of uh, Molly and Kevin's house. Because yes. Kevin wakes her up in the middle of the night, she's like, I think I heard somebody outside, and she creeps through, and there's a shadow that goes across, and she opens the door, and there's a cop there. Terrible actor. <laughs> I love it. It's just hilarious. It's a big guy. I, I'm sorry. You know, I h- hate it. You know, it's just, you know, he's got a few, just, man, I think you come back inside. Come back inside, please. I think you should come back inside. It's it's hilarious. It's It's really funny. Yeah. If you go back and just watch his line delivery. Anyway, so my major complaint that I'm going to 
file with the complaints department is just the the whole Francis Dollarhide and Reba McLean relationship. It happens way too fast for me. It does. It's just it's way underdeveloped and it's and I just choose to go with it, but it's really not realistic. She's way too trusting, way too fast because he goes into the photo lab and she's there and she needs a ride home. And he says in the creepiest of voices, creepiest fucking tone, he says, ride with me because I would like you to. How about this? No fucking way. No fucking way am I riding with you, dude. Just if I, I, I don't even need to see you. Just the way you just said that just creeped me the fuck out. So and then he, on top of that, he says, on the way, can I take you? So they've just, it, it, it appears as though they've just met. I get that they have worked together at this processing thing, but they, there's no real establishing of their relationship, like their, of their previous association. Does that make sense? Like, it just seems like they've just met. And then he, on top of the fact that he's really desperate to give her a ride home and she's totally agreeable to this, he says, on the way, can I take you somewhere? And she's like, where? And he says, it would be my surprise about no fucking fucking way, way at all, mister. No, no. So then they go, then it quickly, it goes right to the, the, to the pet, the tiger scene, which is really cool. Yes. I forgive that. And then it's back to his house for dinner and drinks. Well, okay. That happens really fast. And then they're going to watch a nice little movie. Well, she can't see, but they're going to watch a movie of a family he's about to murder. So that's romantic. And then it's, Pet the tiger time again, if you know what I mean. Yep. <laughs> that that means sexy time. And I'm like, what? Wait, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. They're fucking. What? What? Just wait. Do it. They just. What? Just, what? It's been five minutes. What just happened? How did this all happen? It just this whole relationship just kind of was like, this is bullshit. This wouldn't happen. But I don't care because this movie looks cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's like, don't get me wrong. We're getting a sense of his attachment to her. We get the sense that he doesn't. Things are established very quickly in these scenes that that's good character development on one level. We understand that Dollar Hyde has some uh, body dysmorphia issues, uh, self-image issues, and he doesn't want her touching his face. We know he has a scarred uh, lip and things like that and all these things. But it, it just, yeah, it happens way, way too quickly. How about more complaints, man? Okay. So, yeah, all my complaints are basically the final scene. So, as much as I love, 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 love the Graham jumping through the window, was that necessary? I mean, you see the Tooth Fairy about to kill the woman. You have a gun. Just shoot him through the window because... Jumping yeah. through the window did you no good. You basically jumped right into his arms. It should have got you. Dollarhide literally catches him. Yes, it's awesome. Literally catches him. It's pretty awesome. It is pretty awesome. And then throws him into a refrigerator. Yeah, that would have been great if he actually threw him inside the refrigerator. The door just shut on him. Yep. So, speaking of Graham going for the final shoot, this final shootout. Why is Graham going in at all? Because before he even sees Dollarhide with Reba, like he's supposed to be a bystander. Right. I think that just goes into his psyche of 
is what that, I mean, are says. we just supposed to think that he's like, that's the whole thing is that when they're driving to the scene and Crawford's in the backseat going, Graham, Graham, you're not, you're in Graham's loading the gun. And Crawford's like, you're not going in, you're not going in, you're staying behind. But you could, is that the whole point is that Graham is already, he's got his mind made up. He's set. He's like, I'm going to go get this motherfucker. Yeah, he's going to kill him. Yeah, because I think you're right. I, I just wanted to hear it from you that to confirm that's kind of what I thought. But I was just like, wow, he just really goes against the whole thing is that he's not supposed to get too close. We understand psychologically and emotionally, he's completely all in. But to just directly disobey, although I guess technically he's an FBI agent. I, th- I can't remember if it's mentioned in the director's version or this version. The serial killer he catches before Lecter, he kills him. So he, right. has, he has this penchant of killing the people he catches. Mm-hmm. This is why there's that thin line of, like, Lecter is right. They are right. alike. He is a yeah. killer. Yeah, good point. Okay, he, does, he just point. does it behind the back. So he just literally he goes he get, like they get the squad cars pull up. He hops out. He's going for it. This is where yeah is the point that he's all the way in now. There's no stopping him. That's Graham, you know, going after Dollarhide. Hey man, why the fuck do walkie talkies always crap out at the most inopportune moments? They're kind of creeping through the forest, and then all of a sudden Crawford can't hear him over the walkie talkie. It just keeps cutting out. Yeah, and. Graham's like, he's in there. He's got somebody in there with him. Something's happening. And Crawford can't hear him. I'm like, get some better walkie talkies, guys. There shouldn't be that much interference. Why is this happening? This is stupid. Yeah. That's a, it, that's a common trope, though, in all. But they're not cell phones. Movies, the for- communication cuts out somehow. But come on. No. Walkie talk. No. Dumb. But yeah. Uh, so then. Like you said, Graham should have just shot him through the window, but he decides to do a really, uh, really cool slow motion run, yes. which I appreciate it and uh, jumps through the window and gets caught immediately, which is awesome by a six foot seven killer and gets thrown into a fridge, gets knocked out. Why doesn't Dollar Hyde just shoot Graham with the shotgun then and there? That was mine. I had that written down when you have shot Graham on the floor. That's right in the fucking face. Yep. Make sure your gun works. Boom. That's like I love that. That's another trope you'll see a lot in horror films too, or other movies where the bad guy just like knocks out the other, the good guy, and just like, oh, okay, I can leave him there for a minute. Was he saving him for something? I, I don't know, but it's just like, dude, this is all weird. So he doesn't shoot Graham; he just he knocks him out because he's throwing him against the fridge, and Graham falls to the floor unconscious. We've got Reba cowering in the corner. He goes for the shotgun in the closet. Shoots out the lights, which does nothing since all the lights. Anyway, so and then bursts through the wall, which is really kind of crazy. And now he's like superhero and he blasts a couple of cops and gets shot like twice in the chest himself and then comes back into the kitchen. And you see Graham is like slightly unconscious, but he's coming to how does Dollar Hyde miss Graham with the shotgun at this point? He Dollarhide points the shotgun at Graham and blows away a ketchup bottle. Yep. Graham grabs his pistol, his gun, and shoots Dollarhide dead. What the fuck is Dollarhide doing with that goddamn shotgun? I, I don't know what, like. Yeah, he went from pinpoint to. I, it was just a, re, it's a weird, like you can poke so many holes in that final action sequence. And I think 
it's just, it's very confusing as to why any of that happens. Just probably right from the fact, like the whole, the major hole that you'd pointed out from the beginning. But well, what's even weird too is so they're flying to Missouri and they're getting, they're sending the information to the cop. And then the cops are like, oh, you'll probably get there before we do. I'm like, you're on a plane. Oh, yeah. Is every right. cop at the station? There's no cops that are out and about. There's got to be one cop that's closer right. to the house. Okay. Yeah, sure. maybe, maybe from the airport. Yes, it is closer than the station, but there's a thing called, you know, CB. And you say, hey, who's near blah, blah, blah address? Get your ass over there. Meet the FBI. Yeah, no doubt about it. That made no sense to me either. No, no, no. Uh, that's hilarious. Good point. That's a great point. I going back a little bit in the film that uh, Hannibal Lecter has has really betrayed uh, Will Graham. Not that by no surprise by giving the Tooth Fairy Will Graham's home address and literally telling the Tooth Fairy through code to go to that address and kill his entire family. Yes. Only a few scenes later, Will Graham is back on the phone with Lecter asking for more inside info on the tooth fairy. And they're kind of having a little heart to heart. And I was kind of like, Hey, Lecter just tried to send a serial killer to murder your entire family. I'd be a little more upset at that point. Would you be a little miffed? Yeah. that 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 would bother me a little bit. Granted, he needs Lecter to try to continue to get into the methodology of this killer. But I don't know. I was just like, holy shit. Lecter really just went after your whole family. He wanted to kill all of you. Literally said to the tooth fairy, save yourself, kill them all. I'd be mad. All right. Anything else for complaints or Swiss? No, man. Let's move on to a brand new segment. Yes. Brand new. Well. Not necessarily brand new. It's, hey, it's that actor from Miami Vice. Yeah. We spotlight actors that have appeared in episodes of Miami Vice, which we've mentioned was produced by Michael Mann. Jason, who do you have for, hey, it's that actor from Miami Vice. I'm going to start with the most probably, I'm going to say most obvious one, maybe not to some, but to me, uh, Michael Talbot. Yes. Is briefly he is the the real estate agent that is uh, showing the Jacoby property to Will Graham, and immediately recognizable as Detective Stan Switek from Miami Vice for the entire run of the show from 1984 to 1989. Michael Talbot. All right. Who else do you have? All right. So I'll go with um, Dennis Farina, who played Jack Crawford. Hell yeah. Um, he played the recurring character of Albert Lombard in three episodes of Miami Vice, two in season one and one in season five. Um, the episode titles were One-Eyed Jack, Lombard, and World of Trouble. Lombard's my favorite. Awesome. Next up, I'm going with Kim Greist, who plays Molly, Will Graham's wife, Molly Graham. Very pretty lady. Doesn't have like a really long imdb but i thought she was great in this and she's great it's great uh episode of miami vice 1985 uh episode entitled nobody lives forever which you were bringing up earlier yeah. and you were saying that's the is she plays uh brenda in that episode and she has a romance with crockett mm-hmm. 
It's a great episode. You'd mentioned before, this is the episode with uh, Tubbs showing up because Crockett was late to a, or missed, missed a stakeout, right? Or something. Yeah. Yeah. Tubbs gets beat up and Tubbs shows up at the door the next, you know, and because uh, Crockett's been with his lady with Kim Greist. And you can also hear heartbeat in that episode. That's right. Yes. And Tubbs sh- yeah, shows up at the door, door opens and he's got like huge black guy. He's been beat up. It's no bueno. So my next actor is Jim Zabina. Who played, oh, Jim. Yeah, who played Spurgeon. Who? So he is the one um, with Graham when they do the walkthrough. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So he was in season one episode, Calderon's Return, part one. He was the hitman, the hit list. Wow. He was the one that shoots um, Rodriguez, who was trying to kill Crockett. And then he shows up at Crockett's home and they bid the shootout and he does a great he does a great shot when he when he jumps through the front window and starts firing his little gun and everyone guns him down. Oh, that's awesome. And he yeah, he is a marksman expert and he actually taught Tom Cruise how to shoot for collateral. No shit. Yeah, he's a world's marksman. Yeah. There you go. Yep. Totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. There's the Michael Mann connection with those films. Yeah, that's very cool. And here I am, like thinking I looked at all the he's one of the actors I did not look at his IMDb. So uh, I'm going to go with one of my my guys, uh, my favorite actors, or who's that guy? You know, like it's that actor from mm-hmm. Bill Smitrovich. Yay! Uh, we I think I mentioned him. He was my hey, it's that actor from was it uh, Splash? Splash? Yep. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he is also in uh this film manhunter uh is it bowman is that his character's name yep lloyd bowman and, and uh he's doing a lot of that lab stuff and he's looking at the toilet tissue with the with the tooth fairies writing on it and stuff and he's he's great he's immediately recognizable great character actor on miami vice uh he plays two different parts in two different episodes uh, in 1984 that first season he plays lieutenant scott wheeler in the episode brothers keeper and then in 85, he plays a DEA Miami commander uh, in The Prodigal Son. Those are two great episodes. Yes, very good ones. All right, um, moving on. Gasmano Serirati, who was the <laughs> National Tatler photographer, also in the episode Nobody Lives Forever. What? And he was actually the producer one of the producers of the miami vice the movie wow he was a one of the tatler photographers he was the national tatler photographer in that scene so he's the one that takes the pictures when him and, and freddie lloyd's take the picture together and he's like hey make sure you get the the sign in the background so the photographer i got you yep that was him damn all right so i got to keep going on yeah yeah i'm 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 out all right uh chris elliott wait i looked at yeah, he is. Is he really? I thought I looked at. Uh... Yeah, Chris Elliott, who played Zeller. I think he has one line in Manhunter when they're kind of doing around the around the table scene. So he was in a season three episode. He was down for the count part two. So he was Danny the cryptographer. So that was um, Zito's last episode. Oh no shit! When he gets killed. Ah. Uh, down for. He had to bring that up, Bill. Yeah, he just sorry. had to bring it up. Sorry. <sighs> Just opening up old wounds, man. All right. And the last one, this is this one. <laughs> not even going to let me have that moment. No, I'm not going to let you have Come that. Come on. 
Okay. He's got the needle in his arm. Switek finds him. Oh, it's off. It's a sad scene. Keep going. Okay. Okay. I was, I was doing, over. I was doing. I was doing a moment of silence for you. I was doing a moment of silence. For you. I felt bad. Like, I Bill, felt Bill, bad. Did I lose you, Bill? Come in, Bill. Yeah, I felt bad. That no, was my fault. Keep going. What? What? What else we got? Was that it for Miami? Or do you have more? I have one more. This is kind of a cheat. So the last person is uh, Garcella uh, Buevas. She plays the mom in the Spider-Man. The, the latest Spider-Man movie. She's MJ's mom. Wow. She's been in a ton of stuff. So they shot her scene, but they never used it in the movie. Oh, but she's, but she's but she's cut, t- man. What are you but, talking about? So she's the young woman house buyer that Michael Talbot talked about. Right. I saw the credit. I thought that must have been in one of the, or in the director's cut. So she was the couple that was supposed to be looking at the house when the police show up. Right. So they had shot that scene. They never, they didn't even put in the director's cut. Okay. They're both credited, the husband and like her and the other guy. I'm like, oh, that must have been the couple that, yeah. Yeah. She was in two episodes of season one of Miami Vice. She was in The Maze, which was the one with uh, Tubbs gets uh, caught up in the, um, with the the drug runners. Uh Uh-huh. And then she was in Give a Little, Take a Little, where she just played a waitress. So there's our- Hey, it's that actor from Miami Vice. So great. There's so many, hey, it's just general, hey, it's that actor, like recognizable actors in this film. Anyway, moving on. Unless yes. you have any other, no, hey, it's that actor. We're shows. good. Let's keep All moving right. on. Let's uh, do it. Facts and trivia. So what do we have for facts and trivia? Uh, well, starting with uh, some casting trivia, Richard Gere, Mel Gibson, and Paul Newman were considered for the role of Will Graham. But uh, Michael Manhead cast William Peterson. After seeing footage from another 80s cult classic, To Live and Die in L.A., which I think you and I may have to do at some point. Yes, we do. Cool movie. And uh, William Peterson spent time with officers of the Chicago Police Department uh, researching his role as Will Graham. And uh, yeah, I didn't know this, that William Peterson had a small role as a bouncer in Michael Mann's 1981 film, Thief. No, yeah, I don't. I haven't seen that film. I think I've only seen it once a long time ago. And that's something yeah. I do need to revisit. Yeah, I've only seen it once too, to be honest. Uh, what do you got for some fun facts and trivia? I've got some other casting things I can run through real quick. Sylvester Stallone? Sylvester Stallone was supposed to play the role of everyone in this film. Just kidding. There's no Sylvester Stallone mentions here. Wow. Okay, so we'd love to talk about the final scene. So... In shooting the final confrontation between the Tooth Fairy and Graham, um, so we know that Noonan had to lie in a pool of stage blood right. for several hours. Yeah, this is great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess he was in there way too long because he almost literally fused to the floor. Right. The stuff hardened. Basically had to scrape, scrape him up, literally. Be careful with that stage blood. That is, that's a great fun fact and piece of trivia. And... uh the fact that I didn't realize this until I'd done the research and then rewatching the film, that the way that uh, Tom Noonan's body is positioned with the blood flowing out and the way that it's stylized, he's supposed to look like the red dragon, dragon from the yeah. painting. Yeah. 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 I didn't. Uh, anyway, a little, little subtlety there. Actors John Lithgow, Mandy Patinkin, and Brian Dennehy, and even director William Friedkin were considered for the role of uh, Hannibal Lecter. But Brian Cox was cast. 
again, I mentioned he was a Scottish actor, is a Scottish actor. Brian Cox is still working today, very much so. Uh, when Cox was asked to audition, he was well, he was asked to audition with his back turned to the casting agents. You know, uh, you know Bonnie Timmerman did the casting because this was just huge casting director in a lot of eighties films, especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, asked him to audition with his back turned so because they could just focus on the power of his voice. It was cool. Yeah. And funny enough, that's his introduction in the film is he is back is turned. He's facing the wall when he first mm-hmm. speaks. So there you go. All right. Um, so the scene with Will Graham on the airplane when he, uh, he falls asleep with the crime photos. Yeah. Supposedly that was shot guerrilla style. Right. Um, because uh, the airline would not give them permission to shoot that scene. So they literally just brought the camera, booked the flight brought the equipment on the plane and just shot it at regardless. Yeah. And uh, everyone on the um, flight supposedly got, and the crew supposedly got Miami Vice jackets. Yeah. Or Manhunter jackets. Yeah. I, or yeah, did I've they heard, get Miami I, Vice jacket? Oh, they, uh, I've heard, I've heard both. crew jacket. Oh, okay. That would make sense. Yeah. I've heard both. I would, I would have asked for the Miami Vice jacket. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't have been on that flight. You would have been like picky. Hey, can I get, yeah. do you have any of the Miami Vice jackets yeah. left? Get the, get the Miami Vice. I mean, Manhunter's, Manhunter's kind of cool, kind yeah. of sense, but I like Miami Vice. Yeah, uh, that's great. Uh, Joan Allen played uh, the role of Reba McLean. In preparation for a role, Allen spent time with the New York Institute for the Blind, learning to walk through New York blindfolded. So, yeah, supposedly Michael Mann also spent several years corresponding with imprisoned murderer Dennis uh, Wayne Wallace. Wallace had been motivated by his obsession for a woman he barely knew and believed that Iron Butterflies in Agata de Vida was their song. This connection inspired Mann to use that song in the film. Creepy. Very creepy. All right. uh, So let's move on to box office. Yeah. So the movie was released on August 15th, 1986 on an estimated budget of 15 million. This film flopped bringing in only 8.6 domestically. It debuted at number eight on the box office chart and was out of the top 10 by week two. It also debuted a week after our last podcast episode, one crazy summer. That was not intentional that we did movies (laughs) back to back weeks. So, yeah, this movie did not do well. Uh, I know. So moving on to reviews, uh, when growing up in the early 80s, we loved catching at the movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming movies. Guess what, Jason? Manhunter was not reviewed on the show. No. In fact, at the movies didn't air any episodes in the month of August of 86. However, in 2001, Manhunter was reviewed on an episode of Ebert and Roper and the movies where it was that week's video pick of the week. Roper called the movie almost as memorable as Silence of the Lambs and Brian Cox's performance chilling. So awesome. It did get on. Finally. Yes, finally. All right, so that brings us to final thoughts. What are our final Absolutely. thoughts of Manhunter? Let's talk about how much we hated this movie to everyone. <laughs> uh, here's a, fi- a few final thoughts, uh, just some add-ons. Uh, one, Quentin Tarantino absolutely thinks William Peterson was like the best casting ever for this part, this role of Will Graham, and I totally agree. 
I just heard him speak on another rewatchables podcast. Actually, I'm sorry. It was the big picture, I believe uh, podcast. And uh, so shout out to them and having Tarantino on and his uh, uh, shout out to William Peterson. And uh, I couldn't agree more. Did you know that Joan Allen is five foot 10? No. Yeah. And she's tall. Cause you and I had, I think had a brief discussion is why wasn't she in more? She's yeah, excellent. Like, I love her in the contender. I love her and everything. She's I'm mean, even in face off, whatever. I mean, I've seen it. She's obviously been a lot more than just those two films. She has a storied career. She's an excellent actress, but she was in face off. Yeah, absolutely. She's uh, Travolta's wife. I didn't remember that. I felt like she was in this movie disappeared for like 20 years until the contender. And then she was like in every other film for like five years. She probably was not, I'm just going to assume she was not cast as much, or it probably worked against her as an actress being a little bit taller. Wow. That's probably why she just, and it makes sense that she would be in face off with two actors that are tall. I mean, Travolta and Nicolas Cage are both taller. Um, And that she was paired also in this particular film with Tom Newton, who's six foot five. Yeah. I mean, you see her standing with Ralph in this film. She's taller than him. William Peterson's 5'10". You see them hanging at the end. They're the same height. Oh, she's taller. Yeah. Wow. I, you know? I learned something new. Did you know that? I totally forgot about this. We were talking about the other films in this franchise. I always think of it as a trilogy, of course, with three different directors. You're talking about Michael Mann, Jonathan Demi, and Ridley Scott. Yes. Are you aware of the fourth film, Hannibal Rising? I knew it was out there i had forgotten about it until doing some more research it apparently isn't necessarily worth watching but now i'm kind of curious but it's a young Hannibal Lecter. wait who's in that you have to look it up it's uh uh there is one actor i can't think, and I, it's a guy wait, this, i really like too this, this I, came out in the theater yeah it's uh i want to say well thomas harris had written the novel i think in 2006 so it's okay. like a prequel sort of thing oh Oh, you know what? I think I did hear this. I'm trying to look it up here. Hannibal Rising's 2007. It's a two-hour film. Dominic West is in it. That's the actor I know. Yeah. There's some other people in it, too. I'm going to say I missed that one. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to run out or stay home, for that matter, and watch it at any point soon. And we do know that, of course... uh, Red Dragon was made once again in 2002, starring Ed Norton and Anthony Hopkins, reprising his role as Hannibal Lecter. And that movie's all right, directed by Brett Ratner. You know, it's got its issues. I just think it's it's just okay. If anything, I would recommend people, they, they watch it, and I watched this scene again. It's just the opening scene. There's actually a couple of opening scenes, like the cold open or teaser, if you will, in the film. That's worth watching because it's it's mentioned in this film when Will Graham is talking to Lecter and just, you know, makes the discovery that Lecter is Hannibal Lecter, that he is the serial killer he's been looking for all along. Uh, Because it's mentioned in Manhunter that Will Graham is like, they're like, how did you catch him? And he's like, well, I, I was meeting with him and I noticed that he had a book on his bookshelf that had to do with war wounds. That's this discussion that happens in this film in Manhunter in Red Dragon, the 2002 you actually see that scene between Ed Norton and Anthony Hopkins. Red Dragon does follow the book more than Manhunter does. Yeah. Is it as successful or effective? I don't think so. No. But my humble opinion. So those are some other thoughts. I had uh, a few 
uh, I had a, one other thought is that uh, this would just have been a really nice connect because we know that Joan Allen plays Reba McLean. Is um, if that there was a diehard connection here, if she was the estranged, uh, long lost sister of John McLean. Could be. And could there be something there? Yeah. Uh, maybe a side story, diehard, a, a sibling sti- a side story. I think that could be a movie. Well, I don't know. Did that one with the sun. That did not work out too well. <laughs> a good know. day to die hard. Oh, man. Good day to kill a franchise. Oh, my goodness. What the hell happened? Uh, so here's a question for you, Phil. Phil. <laughs> Phil? Let's get a little late. Yeah. Hey, Phil Fant. Here's yes. a question for you. Would you live in a house that was always soaked in blue light at night? <laughs> yeah that that was it's pretty, pretty much is it like it's kind of cool at first such a kind of a yeah. cool effect it's kind of sexy it looks cool especially like in that art deco type of architecture like in florida and that house on the ocean mm-hmm. it's like like having a giant blue nightlight but well, then i think it, it's this time it was bothering me because i'm like are they on the stage or are they actually on location and they're just shoot, shooting the blue light in there it was yeah it was it was kind of taking me out because I was trying to figure out what they were doing there. Cause I was like, you see the water in the, in the window. I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Oh, it's saturated. Like yeah. it's rich, man. That yeah. blue light is, it is blue. blue. Yep. Yeah. That's, I think pretty much it. I mean, I've, I'll have, I got my closing comments and that's it. Do you have any other final thoughts on Manhunter? Um, I don't know. I think I almost said everything I want to say up to this point. I'm just like, yeah. this is, this is the definition of a cold classic. It was, it did horrible at the box office and I've probably seen this movie 15, 20 times and I just love it. And uh, even watching it for this, I've found some new things Absolutely. about it. So like I said in the beginning, um, if you're an expiring filmmaker or in the film theory or film writing, this is a yeah, if you're a student of film. Yeah. This is, this is one to watch You get a lot out of it. Uh, no question about it. I would heavily, I heavily, heavily recommend this film uh, because as I had mentioned earlier, you just watch an auteur earlier in his craft, putting it all together. You see how from the beginning, he really knows what he wants. And it's, he just has such a u- specific and unique style and it's so identifiable and it's, um, completely engaging and it's it, it there's there's certain filmmakers that have a have style have a signature um they are auteurs they have a body of work however for me personally whether it be Miami Vice or Last of the Mohicans or Collateral or Heat or Manhunter there's a feeling that's associated I have an emotion that's associated with all of Michael Mann's projects. I just do. It evokes feeling within me. And I, you can say, obviously you can say that for the other filmmakers or two, but this, for me, it's unique. There's such a, because of the integral part that the music has in his films. And of course you could, you know, Scorsese uses a lot of classic music too, and lyrical rock and things like that. And you can say that for other, I don't know, just, for me, maybe again, it's just the 80s, it's the nostalgia, but it was 
it's something that kind of tugs at my heartstrings for some reason. It just is very impactful for me, for Jason Masick personally, where if I ever see anybody emulate the style or try to cut, I know it immediately. It's just like, oh, they're doing the Michael Mann thing. Mm-hmm. You know, immediately, this is a movie that had an effect on me that I love is Drive with Ryan Gosling. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. I mean, the shots, the the way it opens, and then you get the Sith kicking, kicking in, the Clint Mansell's, uh, I think it was, right, a soundtrack score with all then the lyrical songs, too. And I'm just like, yeah, this is Michael Mann. I'm in. Let's do this. Uh, real, so, yeah. All right, real quick. Favorite Michael Mann movie? Oh, that's a great question. I am partial to Heat, but uh, I know I'm missing something. I'm not thinking of all of his. Uh, man, I'm just, you know, going through, the, I'm just looking at his IMDb right now. I have to go, I go back and forth. I think I, I have, do I have to go with Heat? I'll tell you what, man, I'm really partial to Collateral too. That's one I, I don't know if I, I may have watched Collateral more than any of these movies, which is, I don't know if that's weird. Last of the Mohicans. Damn it. What, I don't know. Give me a second. What, what's your favorite Michael Mann movie? Oh, it's Heat. I've seen Manhunter the most, but Heat's my favorite. Yeah. It has to be, man. I mean, I think it's identify. It's enough if it's the year I moved out to LA too. Heat's a game changer. I need to watch that a lot more. I mean, yeah, I think that's one of those films I just watched so many times that uh, I haven't revisited it in a while. Right. I was a big Last of the Mohicans guy. And like you and I were discussing, I need to go back and watch the Miami Vice director's cut. But I tell you, I I fucking love Collateral, man. I love Tom Cruise and that. And I love the way that he shot L.A. in Collateral. But yeah, that's a great question. Again, coming back to Manhunter, this would be in my top. I mean, he doesn't even have that many feature films, but it's in my top five. Manhunter, I mean, I don't know if that's even fair. But gosh, I'm glad we did this one, Bill, because this is an important film. And I, again, just as a a filmmaker, as an actor, as a writer, yeah, I just, you know, I watch this movie and there's scenes that get me excited, man. Mm-hmm. Get scenes that I just watched, like I said, that just you and me and asked for. Puts his hand up against the glass. It's raining. It's like all I want to do is grab a camera and run out and shoot something like that. Like right. Just I just want to copy that scene. Like I don't even like just to do something similar to that. It's inspiring. Obviously, I want to do my own thing too. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, yeah. it's like that's cool. That's you know when you're a young filmmaker and you're watching the magic appear on the screen and you're like, I want to do that. That's it. That's what gets me excited. My passion is that. That's how I feel. There are moments throughout this film, throughout Manhunter, where that happens. I'm just like, yep, that's how I want to do that. That's cool. How do I make that happen? Watch Manhunter. All right. I think we'll leave it right there. Yeah, so I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Our next movie will be the 1982 comedy Night Shift, starring Henry Winkler, Shelley Long, and Michael Keaton. As always, please subscribe and rate us. You can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. 
Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook at All 80s Movie Podcast or tweet us at Podcast All 80s. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. Uh, I got one more shout out for it's uh, just a, Hey, it's that actor from Manhunter. You ready for this one? Yeah, go ahead. All right. He's uncredited. <laughs> yeah, Steve, where, where, are we, where are we going with this one? Go ahead. As the Atlanta policeman, the one and only Marshall Bell. Yes. He was also Contra number one and no way out. He was my, Hey, it's that actor. I believe from, from no way out. Yes. Um, he was also in a 1990 film called Total Recall. <laughs> he played the, the part of George, also known as Quato. Open your mind. <laughs> oh, when I saw him, I was like, thank Christ. Oh, we get we get we get some Bill Bant. Quato impersonations in this podcast. Ah, don't even really have to force it. Marshall yeah. Bell is in I knew this was, movie. I knew it was coming. I was getting ready for it. Ah, oh, as soon as I saw him, I was like, son of a bitch, I'm going to have to work on that. <laughs> All right. Did you, sorry, I wasn't even looking. Did you do the hand motion too? I did. You missed it. <laughs>